Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Happy Christmas and welcome to your own personal Beatles. It's a Christmas bloody special. My name's Jack Belling. And I'm Robin Allender and it is the 23rd of December. Happy birthday to my brother Tom. Happy birthday and happy birthday for you for two days ago, which yes. is at the time of recording, what, one week in the future? Yeah. Confu- not, to, not to ruin the magic <laughs> of uh, radio slash podcast. Yeah. Um, but a very warm welcome and very happy festive jubilation to you all uh we're going to talk a little bit about get back Mm. for uh, the next hour or so um as well as hearing from a lot of ghosts of podcast past and present and possibly future Mm. unsure of the future of the podcast at the moment (laughs) um we might be back this might be our last ever one so strap in and let's beetle on (laughs) we need a serious program of work if we want to make this work in the future. No, I'm just joking. That's that's one of my favourite Paul quotes. It could be like an aspirational quote, you know, like in in an office, a serious programme of work. Anyway, yes, we we hope to come back um, in the future. I think we'll take a break uh, next year. But um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. But yes. Before we get started, I just thought I'd remind you that we are nominated for Best Music Podcast at Pod Bible's Winners Poll 2021, and you can still vote for us until the end of December. So we'd massively appreciate it. If you did, um, you can go to podbiblemag.com and vote for us uh, in the music section. You can also vote for us in the uh, Best Independent Podcast category, I assume, um, because we are an independent podcast. Um, So yeah, if you do that, you'll make us very happy indeed. So we'll be hearing from some fantastic people uh, and we've got a little switchboard here of stuff. Some of the people you know are going to give us some questions about Get Back, some about other things, some controversial opinions Mm. and uh, we've got some little buttons here and you're going to, every now and then we're going to press one and we're going to get a question. So, you know, choose wisely. (laughs) But yes, Get Back... Have you have you done have you done the double? Have you watched it twice? Or? I've watched the first two twice. Yeah, um, and then it seems like quite a while ago that we watched one, two, and three. Yeah. And um, we've given you a little bit of our thoughts on it, but we've been saving the sort of real deep dive for mm. for Christmas. Hope yeah. you're all not sick of it now, having <laughs> seen it hundreds well, of times. I just think it's nice to just have you know, like I've watched it twice now, but it's also nice to just have on in the background as just ambient. You know, just you look over and you're like, oh, there they are. And yeah, like, my great. girlfriend's been enjoying that as well, apart from the more sort of shouty, screamy bits. Right. Where yeah. she's like, what is this racket? <laughs> uh, particularly the bit where they get very drunk after yeah. uh, after George leaves. Well, but yeah. that, I mean, as I think I mentioned it before, but something about the Beatles podcast with an interview with Peter Jackson, he does a very good rundown of when they're at their most drunk. Yeah. Pissed watch. Yeah. <laughs> but there is a pissed watch. Yeah, there is um, the day when they do the recce on the roof of Savile Row. They start firing into the scotch and cokes and do about mm. four or five run-throughs, let it be, and they are 
absolutely smashed. It's really <laughs> quite funny. But yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, now you've had a couple of weeks to sort of digest it. Um, is there anything that having gone through it a second time or having that time to let it percolate that has really sort of stuck with you? I know we both had a very sort of visceral, emotional response to the first time we saw it. Mm. Yeah, I think one of the main things is to this idea that it feels like they're from the future, as in it feels like they're totally contemporary to us now. Um, that's the hardest thing to get your head around. Like, so there's a couple of bits I just noticed on the rewatch. One is, do you know that bit when they're in Savile Row and the Beatles are all somewhere else and all the engineers have started getting up and playing, you know, playing on the bass and the drums. I think Dick yeah, Jones yeah. is playing the bass as well. Mm. And they just resort into doing this kind of skiffily bluesy thing. And you're thinking, yeah, that's probably what someone at that time would have played, you know? Yeah. yeah. Whereas yeah. the Beatles seem to have been in tune with all the music that's going to come in the 70s. It's before, obviously, disco. It was before punk. You know, it's before, you know, prog was in its infancy. You know, there was so much incredible experimental music in the 70s, you know, before glam. And, you know, but somehow the Beatles, it's like almost like they're attuned to all that. It's almost like they're post-it somehow. They they seem to have be keyed in to the music of the future somehow. Yeah. And they, they kind of have an extraordinary awareness of cliché, like Paul McCartney talking about corny chord changes, like they're like a pair of drainies, you know? That yeah, bit. yeah, yeah. And, you know, the bit I spotted was like, Ringo starts spinning his sticks in his hand as a joke. <laughs> and it's like... Drummers were doing that in the, in the 80s without a shred of irony. How, yeah, how are yeah. you that far ahead of the game? <laughs> you know what I mean? But, and, and we touched on this before, but it is that weird thing of like, um, yeah, that they just seem out of place with the iconography of, yeah. of the time. Yeah, and yeah. even sort of Mal Evans's uh, sort of cow, cowboy jacket mm. <laughs> looks like pathetic by then <laughs> you know it looks very sort of passe and like something out of the pepper but and right. they just look like they're sort of dropped into this thing and maybe it's because they're just we we know those personalities so well and they're so sort of iconic but yeah you're absolutely right even the bit that there's a sort of hint of the beginnings of um castle of the king of the birds mm. where paul that paul's playing when no one else has turned up and it's very that's very proggy yeah it is that's um, that, this is um that's it's playing during the credits of episode one, isn't it? Well, he's working out with Mal oh, where, yeah. at the bit where he's playing him things like Backseat of My Car and oh, Another yeah, Day yeah. and a lot of, you know, when the other Beatles haven't turned up, he's basically just, you know, playing around with things mm. that will end up on Ram in a few years' time. Mm. But he plays the beginning of that and the, and the caption calls it Castle of the King of the Birds, whereas mm. I think it's called Palace of the King mm. of the Birds at some point. But that doesn't uh, surface until the... Until the seventies, I think yeah. it's on the Rupert the Bear soundtrack or something yeah. like that. But like, um, um, yeah, the clientele tweeted about that as that being one of their favourite kind of Beatles outtakes, mm. and it sort of it totally makes sense. You can hear, you know, the clientele in that as well. So I, you know, I just think they're just looking forward to so much uh, stuff. You know, so much creativity in the seventies, and they, yeah, like I say, they seem completely timeless. Yeah. So, what are your feelings about Get Back? having kind of had a, a bit more time to digest it? Um, I think the, uh, the overwhelming thing for me was um, just seeing the interpersonal nature of it at first. And now the kind of dust has settled on that and I feel I know them a little bit more. Um, I suppose I'm getting to know the music again 
because I sort of heard a lot of stuff I hadn't heard before on the Let It Be Super Deluxe, and then I saw it in action, and now I've kind of gone back to the records. Definite new love for the Glyn Johns stuff. Mm. I think it's now more than a bonus CD for me. It will be something that I still, um, that I go back to a lot more. And um, I think a lot of it is just kind of I felt like it was going to tie up a lot of loose ends but actually there's a lot more yarn <laughs> yeah. hanging around the floor yeah, really yeah yeah um I mean so much more kind of re- regret of what these things could have become and I think um we'll be hearing from uh, a, a past guest a little later on who kind of sums this up perfectly yeah but now as you, as you see it as a whole it's more for me now a film about sort of the creative process, really, mm. and about charging through the barriers that come up when you're struggling with relationships or creative ideas that have, like, fallen into a hole. And having seen a lot of um, friends and people that I sort of follow on social media who are not necessarily massive Beatles fans who are absolutely loving it, mm. what they grab onto is just watching people who are sort of bona fide geniuses create something out of nothing Mm. and I think that's the kind of universal thing and that's why I think Alexis Petritus is completely wrong about (laughs) it being um, something for the fans I really don't think it is it might be too long for the average fan and maybe there should be an agnostic cut that's like two and a half hours yeah but it's as long as a series though yeah exactly if it was a six part Netflix series Mm. then people wouldn't bat an eyelid about it it's just because it's in such major chunks but I think you do have to spend that amount of time with them uncut because yeah. that's how you I know that's how a lot of people binge those series anyway but that's mm. how you get into the rhythm of their thinking yeah um, and yeah I mean I just love it more and more and more yeah. I must say I mean now that's the thing as well as the length I tried to sort of say this in an earlier intro but that idea that we're used to seeing the kind of documents from the past as you know, you're used to seeing the Beatles in kind of montage, let's say. Yeah. And I think something strange happens to your sense of time when you're watching it because it's a short period of time, but they actually catch the feeling of the kind of languor, the kind of length of time that they mm. were spending, you know, trying to f- come up with ideas or trying to fix a song or something. So, you, yeah, you kind of get a, a weird sense of time with it. If it's, yeah. it's, long, it's a short and long space of time at the same time. Yeah, and you've done a lot more sort of professional musicianship stuff than than I have, but I've had, you know, periods where, uh, you know, I've been working against the clock in a studio. Mm. (laughs) And so you're very aware of you have a finite amount of time to sort of get these things done. Mm. And what's interesting is that they don't have... They do have it, but it's over a massive scale. So whenever I've recorded in a studio, it's been like, we've got four hours Mm. to do this, and you know exactly what you're putting down before you're you know before you're going in mm. and then but even then you have to cut your loves at the and a lot of it the way that they're just completely unsatisfied with mm. with the final product and that, that they feel yeah. that like he uh, he says when their backs against the wall they do yeah. their, their best stuff and you can see that sort of come across yeah that's really interesting and also you know you're right yeah they were obviously weren't satisfied with how it ended up but I think um well, Paul particularly, obviously, but I think um, the way the film captures this period of conflict, but also harmony, the fact is they are getting on, and the rooftop concert is so kind of emotional, 
Um, and then it's kind of knowing how kind of things went awry afterwards that makes it kind of such a sad yeah. watch, you know. Yeah, especially because um, there's, you know, this this is very close towards the end. And yeah. even when Paul leaves, we'll talk a little bit later on, because um, one of the um, questions we've got is about a particular scene where John and Paul are, d- are discussing in very frank and very um, emotionally mature terms mm. um, the dynamic with George and how that is mm. basically unsolvable. When you can see that moment when George leaves and Paul is just utterly convinced that he's going to be back. Mm. He's not he's all, he's not too worried about it because they know that Ringo's left before yeah. and he comes back and he knows that George comes back and this is kind of that thing of it's how many last chances do you get mm. and luckily this was the time where people did come back but yeah. um and then you obviously see the Alan Klein stuff and mm. uh you know that that's the kind of death knell really. Yeah. I mean there's a lovely thing Peter Jackson said again in that podcast is the the idea that so many of the received narratives of that period came from the fact that people just had the audio. You hear about George leaving and you hear the way they discuss it afterwards. But obviously, without the visual, you don't see that kind of hug between Ringo, John and Paul at the end of that day. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so like the, the way that Get Back kind of changes the narrative through those kind of visual cues yeah. is, is hugely important. Yeah, and a lot of that is going back to the time thing of just giving yourself the time to tell those stories, yeah. which is the whole the whole leaving the band thing. Yeah. It is very abrupt and sudden, yeah. but it's it's a slow burn, yeah, and it's been yeah. building up to that. Yeah. And so you're more sort of sympathetic to him. And also, the, yeah, it's brilliantly cut, isn't it? The way that whole scene, because it's just you know John and Paul totally bonding over two of us. Yeah. And George getting more and more left out. And, you know, cinematically, it's, like, really well done, I think. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think you see that a lot at Twickenham, is that the the better they get on, the more he feels left yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And there's a bit where, I mean, Michael Lindsay Hogg, I don't think, comes across brilliantly in the film. I like him. You do like him? Well, I, he's eccentric. <laughs> he is eccentric, but the way that he's trying to sort of... There's a couple of moments he's when he's trying to 2, tell... He's obsessed with 2,000 Arabs. He is obsessed with 2,000 Arabs. But there's bits when he's trying to sort of tell Linda that he's a bigger Beatles fan. Yeah, that's, her, And he's that's, trying to tell George uh, Martin about the relationship that John and Paul have with George and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, come on, mate. He's like, I'm a bigger fan than you. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. that's pathetic. Yeah. <laughs> pathetic. Um, but also, the kind of... I, I, I'm just staggered by how productive the next two years were as well. I mean, talking about things went awry, but creatively, it's extraordinary what Paul, John and George achieved in 1970 and 1971. It's just yeah. absolutely yeah, yeah. mad. You know, there's obviously Plastic Ono Band, plus all the singles. You know, there's Imagine was 71. You know, you've got Ram, Wildlife and the McCartney album. You've got All Things yeah. Must Pass and... You've got the concert for Bangladesh. And that's just and the musical the, side as well. There's yeah. all the activism and yeah. all the, you know. So that's just um, in 70 and 71. That's insane. Yeah. and But you can see it bubbling over. I yeah, mean, that, exactly. that is all the germs of those ideas yeah, are kind of there. Precisely. And that's what you can see. It's like, yeah, it's almost like the get back sessions are kind of like, yeah, that melting pot of all the ideas and songs that kind of, including obviously concert for Bangladesh, mm. really, because like they're almost kind of leaning towards doing something like that at one point yeah yeah i mean certainly that grand um, ambition that they have i mean 
loads of them are very sort of you know plucked out of the air and there's that idea that when Paul's like we should just get like the editor of the Daily Mail really really serious news guys I like John Lennon just going on about we get plastic scaffolding yeah so scaffolding (laughs) we can see through it yeah, and yeah, and he's just making notes and stuff, yeah. you know, just writing this down. But it's properly visionary, and even yeah. the stuff of throwaway comments about Paul being like, maybe we should do it in a farm in Scotland. And yeah, yeah. Linda's like, he's always going about farms. Yeah. <laughs> it's but almost it's like, like a badly written kind of drama where you're yeah. doing a kind of origin story of where well, these people I, are going to. Uh, Pink, Pink Floyd and Pompeii is obviously kind of. Yeah. Like they, yeah. That's kind of where they were get, trying yeah, to go. Yeah, of course. I didn't really think uh, about that right. connection. Yeah, I thought that too, what Siri. What the fuck was that? That was Siri. Oh, right. <laughs> Sorry, that's what... Um, but I'm yeah, when, even when you're hearing um, Paul play stuff that ends up on Ram, mm. and you just cannot imagine things like Backseat of My Car as Beatles tracks. No. And they're very obviously on their own trajectory. Yeah. And so it does feel very doomed, and it's great that we're, we're kind of safe in the knowledge that the Abbey Road kind of happens. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. feel quite as tragic. No. And it really, it would be a lot harder to stomach if this really had been the end. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Do you want to do a question? Yeah, let's do a, the first question. Okay, so do you want to pick, um, we've got a little um, load of pads here with different colours. Do you want to pick a colour? I'll go for purple. Purple. Let's see who's behind this door. Hello, gentlemen. This is your former guest, Jeff Lloyd. Ah. Let me tell you something. I regularly have pangs of anxiety about having been, a, I believe, a slightly underwhelming guest on your otherwise excellent podcast. I am here processing my feelings that you are at the end of the series. It's difficult, but I know that we listeners gave our screams, but you gave your nervous systems. <laughs> and I look forward to the inevitable reunion, be it on Saturday Night Live for an amusingly paltry <laughs> Some of money, <laughs> albeit when one of you has died, and I think we all know which one is going first, <laughs> and then the other one takes some outtakes of the podcast and makes something new for us, which, although it can never be the same thing, will still have some magic in it. <laughs> anyway, I have a question for you, which is, in the wake of Peter Jackson's Get Back, the, uh, the old nugget about the Beatles producing and starring in a film version of Lord of the Rings has been doing the rounds again. And I would like to know, what other classic films can you imagine but starring the Beatles? Just to start the ball rolling, how about Star Wars <laughs> with Paul as Luke Skywalker, John as Han Solo, George as Obi-Wan Kenobi, and Ringo as, shall we say, Chewbacca? I almost suggested Darth Vader, but I didn't want it to come across as a character slur in any way. <laughs> wow, that's a great question. Um, and I would say Ringo, I mean, I hope this isn't too um, mean, but he's probably R2-D2, isn't he? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> in I'm a not, nice way, the, not... the short, funny one. Yeah, I mean, this what this question reminds me of is, you know, in the first episode, they keep going on about Around the Beatles. Let's do mm. something like Around the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. I watched that the other day. Have you ever seen it? No, I haven't. It's absolutely fantastic. It's so fascinating. It's quite chaotic, but it starts <laughs> with them doing a bit of Midsummer Night's Dream because they're, they're right, playing the right. round. Yeah, yeah. So it's oh, I have, I've seen clips of that. Yeah, yeah. it's so funny. Mm. And, you know, um, uh, it's John and Paul as Pyramus and Thisbe. George yeah. is the moonlight and Ringo is the lion. And it's very, mm. very, like... 
it's really well done, but like it's so ramshackle and chaotic. But I did think though, Ringo as the lion is is Wizard of Oz. Yeah, which Paul hasn't seen. Really, which comes up in the film. Yeah, because he's playing um, Long and Winding oh, yeah, Road, and is. Mal goes, "Oh, it's a bit like Wizard of Oz." Yeah, have you seen that? And he says, "No." Well, I think in the fifty years since, he might have seen it. Surely. Yeah, but it's been out for twenty five years. I would wager that's still quite a big deal. The Wizard of Oz. That reminds me of Jeff Dyer wrote a book about Stalker, the Tarkovsky film, which mm. goes from black and white to color. Yeah. And you'd think, wouldn't you, if you're going to write a book about Stalker, you might try and also see the other famous film that goes from black and white to colour. Yeah, but well, he said he's never well, seen Wizard of Oz. But then also, the other one that does that is right. That is one of the most um, influential films of their lives, which is uh, The Girl Can't Help It, uh, yeah. which is in uh, the anthology when he's like, one of their first memories is when the guy comes on and clicks his fingers and he goes, uh, and glorious Technicolor. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's amazing that he's never seen The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, that's um, extraordinary. Yeah. If we're doing Wizard of Oz, though, let me just see. So Ringo Lion... Because yeah. full guy kind of funny. He's got courage. Yeah. But he's not. Yeah, but he's not. He's not that weedy, I guess. But yeah, I would say. Yeah, I would. I would say George Tinman. George Tinman. If I only had a heart. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I can. I can sort of see that. I think. Wait. 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 Who's Who's going to be the scarecrow? Scare. I was going to say scarecrow was John. Yeah, and Paul Dorothy. Yeah. Fair play. I think that's about right. Well, I think that's about right. I mean, we've talked about how that, the sort of... Um, can I open yeah, The re- relationship. Yeah, yeah. Always just say, we're, it's Christmas. <laughs> we're, having, we're having cans. Um, we've talked about the sort of dynamic of those four and how they sort of often represented by archetypes. And they've. Mm. we talked with May Martin about the Friends and the Ninja Turtles and mm. stuff. And all of those are TV people. And because Jeff does a fantastic podcast about succession, mm. um, of which you can hear the final episode with Jesse Armstrong today oh yeah and uh, who also betrayed the fact that he's a massive Beatles fan so have you, do you um, think but, you could line up the characters with succession well no I thought it's great that he's asked about films specifically because okay, it would films, be too yeah. hard to do that yeah 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 um, but I went for uh, Ghostbusters oh yeah yeah because you've got Venkman's, the definite John Venkman's and Paul John. so exactly Venkman's John Ray is Paul and then Egon is George. George, yeah. He's like the, uh, you know, cerebral one. Yeah. And uh, Winston is Ringo because yeah. he sort of comes in late. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. Um, but that was a great question. Thank yeah. you very much, Jeff. And also, don't be ridiculous. You were a fantastic guest. Yeah. And uh, if you haven't heard Firecrotch and Normcore and you like Succession, then go and check it out. It's mm. really brilliant. Um, Should we go for another colour? Yeah, do you want to do another colour? I w- I'm going to go for this, what would you call this, like a kind of Mid- aquamarine? Or? I would say turquoise. Lovely. Or aqua, which of course is French for water. water. <laughs> Hello guys, Josh Widdicombe here. Um, I love the podcast and I, I'm glad you've had another wonderful year of it. Um, Merry Christmas. And uh, I thought I'd give you a, uh, a controversial Beatles opinion for you to discuss, which is... When DJing, if either of you have ever DJed at a party or a wedding, despite them being the greatest band ever with a string of hits, there's not really any good Beatles songs that you could put on to confidently fill the floor. Discuss. Excited to hear your views. (laughs) Well, well, well. That's a great one. I mean, as someone who's played a lot of Beatles, on record and in person at a lot of weddings, I'm beginning to... Think there's a reason why I don't get paid. <laughs> well, but, um, first what off, do you think? I think it just depends on on the kind of wedding. Because my yeah. sister's wedding, I played nothing but 1962 to 1964 Beatles. Nice. 
Well, first off, you've got to make sure that your speakers aren't too far apart. That's or, true. Or you're playing <laughs> the <laughs> yes. mono version. Especially if you're going, yeah, if you're going into the split but stereo. What springs to mind is Ed O'Brien when he did his little interview with Paul after the three remixed album came out. Mm. Uh, he said he was. I can't, I can't remember they were in, you know, wherever they were, in LA, I think. And Questlove was DJing, and he played Paperback Writer, and he said it yeah, absolutely and it slapped. Yeah. And I, so I think, I think you're right as well with the early stuff up to uh, 65, 66. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't be spinning Eleanor Rigby at a wedding. <laughs> uh, maybe that's where Stars in 45 come back in. But um, no, I think certainly, uh, for me, All My Loving uh, is... Uh, yeah. a, a massive dance floor filler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it comes back to our old friend talking about funk in the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's the funkiest Beatles song? I've decided Very it's... Very poo-pooed by Matthew E. White when you yeah. brought that up. <laughs> but I think I've thought about it long and hard, and mm. it is three legs off Ram, so not oh, technically yeah. a Beatles song. But the end bit is really funky. It's true. And if we're going to go that far, I would go... As far as to say the, um, the the break in if you can call it a break in band on the run mm. the yeah 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 but then you'd kind of have to loop that bit I don't yeah know. but if you would use it as a break yeah, yeah. right right um, yeah I'm always using stuff as breaks yeah <laughs> um, yeah but I think that definitely the early stuff surely you could put actually no come together is too slow isn't it to dance to. Yeah, I think, you know... One after nine, when nine would like to be boogieing to that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're certainly right. There's, there's a cut-off. It's probably the cut-off is right when they start playing live, really. Yeah. But great question. Thank you very much, Josh. Yeah, thank you, Josh. That was brilliant. Um, do you want to do one more? Yeah, then sure. Me? I'm going to go for this light yellow. Hello to all at <laughs> your own personal Beatles. Does I, John Robbins here... Uh, one of the most controversial guest choices on the programme. Uh, but I've listened back to our episode and it makes for dynamic debate. <laughs> uh, I've since learned um, that another Queen uh, Beatles connection is that David Wigg, who interviewed the Beatles in the past, also interviewed Freddie Mercury in the 80s and was good friends with him and gave a very moving account of one of their interviews in the documentary Freddie Mercury, The Final Act, which I watched recently and cried at six times. Uh, speaking of documentaries, uh, you've asked for any thoughts and feelings on Get Back, uh, <laughs> the new eight-hour documentary, which is too long. And um, unfortunately, I haven't seen it, um, but I have heard Ellis give an account of his thoughts and feelings, um, which people can hear on episode 186 of the Ellis, James and John Robbins podcast, uh, from BBC Five Live, and it remains the most bored I've ever been on radio, as Ellis discusses what it's like to find out how many cups of tea they drink, how often they drink sandwiches, and uh, that Paul McCartney used to use a Cockney accent to deflect tension. So there you go, what a wild, wild ride, a wild wide, <laughs> it's been for us all in the whole Beatles Queen debate that will rage for many millennia to come, uh, but I thank you for... Your content, Beatles-based, I thank you for having me on to offer a different point of view, to challenge received wisdom. And I hope it wasn't too much of a chore for Beatles fans to listen to, because you can always just skip to the to the other ones. Uh, so Godspeed to the fabulous four and uh, 
All the best from me, John Robbins. Bye-bye. Well, thanks very much for that, John. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, Queen Beatles Connections. Yeah. Jack, what do you got? Well, uh, one thing I should say is I did watch that documentary Mm. on uh, BBC iPlayer, and it's really brilliant. Uh, it's very emotional, mm. and uh, I, w- I listened, watched it the same day that I listened to John Ronson's new podcast about a very similar topic. Mm. So it does a very good job of balancing like Freddie's last days with a broader documentary about the sort of AIDS epidemic. And uh, but there's lots of joyous stuff in it, and it's worth watching if only for you get to hear the uh, split track versions of um, the show Must Go On, mm. which has Freddie's finest vocal performance on it and i know that when john was on the podcast we uh, had a bit of a slagging match about that yeah. of which i was admittedly in the wrong um but yeah queen the only one i can think of is that um i believe that the piano that was at trident mm. is the same piano that uh freddie recorded the piano part for bohemian rhapsody is the piano that uh, Paul recorded Hey Jude on. Mm, yes. Even though the rest of it, I think, was done at Rockfield in mm. Wales or something. Yeah. And then a lot of the other, you know, Hey Jude stuff, I think, was maybe it was probably mixed at Abbey Road. Yeah. But that's the only um, connection I can think of, apart from the fact that all of Queen were obviously big Beatles fans, yeah, yeah. which John doesn't seem to yeah. <laughs> countenance. There's a lovely Brian May video where he's, he's got the multi-tracks of Bohemian Rhapsody and he's talking about how the Beatles were just, I think he says the Beatles were God or the Beatles were our Bible. In terms of yeah, recording yeah, techniques, yeah. in terms of double tracking and triple tracking and stuff. So, yeah, uh, there is obviously the influence, the, you know, the anxiety of influence thing, I think, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, great stuff. Yeah. Um, should we do one more? Yeah, sure. Um, what colour would you like to pick this time? Have I done light green? Yeah, I'm done light green. Let's give it a go. Hey, Jack and Robin, this is John Ronson uh, talking to you from Central Park, appropriately. I am perhaps 10 blocks north of the Dakota and Strawberry Fields. I'm walking the same lawns that John and Yoko walked in that footage of them walking through Central Park. Uh, I really hope this isn't your swan song because I think uh, you're an excellent podcast. Um, Maybe in 50 years' time, somebody will make a documentary about how Uh, Everybody thought it was Jack that broke up the podcast, but actually (laughs) Jack turned out to be uh, much more delightful and less abrasive than everyone thought, and it was, in fact, uh, Robin. And I hope that you return, and if you don't, you can feel very proud of the fact that you did something great. Bye. That's really nice. Oh, that was so nice. What a dream. Gosh. Um, Very flattering. And what what a backdrop. Yeah. A real New York wind. Yeah, yeah. That was so nice. I mean, God, I felt so much anxiety about this podcast and to hear John Ronson say it's good is like quite a, so yeah. it's given me a hell of a boost. But um, yeah, that's extraordinary. And I, I you know, I've, I've been, yeah, I've been to Strawberry Fields and Central Park and it's, it's a very haunting area, really. It's extraordinary yeah. to go there, I think. Yeah, I remember the first, the first, well, the only time I've been to the actual Dakota and it mm. was, I don't know, it, it seemed there was something a little bit sort of weird about the fact that it yeah. was such a uh, flagpole part of the uh, mm. open bus tour that I was on because it's a relatively macabre um, yeah. you know, piece of history. But yeah, you definitely do feel it around there and um, mm. the fact that it's synonymous with um, 
John and Yoko mm. is is quite strange considering where it all comes from. Yeah. It's a long way from Mendips. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you so much to John. Special thanks to John, really, because he was the first, um, you know, one of the first people we got to do it that we couldn't quite believe mm. was doing it. And it was a real joy to do. And if you haven't heard that one, um, it's a fantastic podcast. We talk a lot about um, sort of conspiracy theories and yeah. a lot of things that John talks about brilliantly. And if you haven't heard his um, most recent podcast, Think Things Fall Apart, mm. it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes where it takes John to sort of wade in on these big yeah. issues to make sense of them in a really sort of glorious way. Yeah. Uh, so thanks so much for that, John. Yeah, thank you, John. What's next? Um, have I done orange? Have I done red? You've not done red. This is Christine Feldman Barrett from Brisbane, Australia. Jack and Robin... Thanks so much for having me on your Utterly Fab podcast. And at the end of the year, I guess a question I'd really like to pose to the two of you is what kinds of books would you like to see come out about the Beatles in the coming year or so? As you can imagine, as someone who's written a book about the Beatles, this is something I think about quite a lot. I've got my own set of favorite Beatles books, and I do think there are more stories to be told but I'd like to hear what you have to say about this. So have at it. Over to you both. <laughs> Such a good question. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Christine. Um, I had a, a immediate answer to this because mm. I've been, I mean, I think someone like, uh, you know, Joe Wisby might be able to tell us if this exists, mm. but there seem to be no books about the Beatles' influence on sort of hip-hop, really. Mm. which I would find really interesting because you hear every time, like every now and then you'll hear a snippet of some, you know, huge hip hop artist talking about how important the Beatles are to mm. them. And I know the Beastie Boys especially yeah. were massively into the Beatles and Kanye goes on about the Beatles, yeah. but there doesn't seem to be And then just how about... big the Grey album was as well. Like, yeah, exactly. Absolutely yeah. huge, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and, you know, and obviously that song Black Beatles came out mm. a few years ago that became a big craze, but there doesn't seem to be, to my knowledge anyway, a book about how um, the Beatles, which you know is a band that very, was very much formed from black music, mm. sort of came back into the sort of black music sphere in yeah. the 80s and 90s. So that would be my answer. Yeah, I think Rob Sheffield touches on it in uh, Dreaming the Beatles a little yeah. bit. But yeah, no, that's a great that's a great shout. And um, for me, I thought, and this is kind of post Get Back, I I'm really like interested in the tech side of things but i also don't really know much about yeah. it really so like my thing watching get back was like i thought they only had eight tracks here they put they've got four four two, two four, four track tracks machines yeah. so it's like how have they got all these mics like i didn't mm. understand that right. you know yeah. like surely you've only got eight mics you can use Mm. I'm I'm a cretin, but I had it explained <laughs> very well to me by my, my good friend James King, who's a sound engineer. That you know, back in the day, and he's like such a huge fan of Glyn Johns. Like he watched it, the Get Back, and was just like, "Yeah, Glyn Johns was the man." You yeah. know, like, but like you could basically you could you could have multiple inputs on a track. So that's how they did it. Yeah. It's still kind of quite hard to do, but on the rooftop they had a spare track, which is quite extraordinary. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I the, what I'm rambling about is, I think a book about the tech of the time because the tech has changed so much but made very accessible would be really mm. good so something kind of just explaining it in almost a pop science way about what was go what was happening how they went from like two tracks to four to eight 
and how they were able to do a kind of quite complex live recording that was happening in Savile Row and on the rooftop would be quite good. Obviously, you've got to say Solid State by Kenneth Womack is a great book about the making of Abbey Road um, and the more technical side of it. Um, but, you know, I'm sure books like that exist, but something that's kind of... What's great about Get Back is I think do think there's something for everyone. I do think mm. lots of people can get something out of, like the technical questions like what's happening here? Why are they worried about the monitors? What are monitors? You know, like, mm. you know, what, what's happening? Why are they saying get rid of the bass on the guitar here? You know, all these things I think are really interesting. Yeah. So I think a book about that would be really, really good. It's I'm funny. Sure. I saw my friend um, Jimbo who produced my track on the covers challenge yeah. we did the other day. Uh, not a Beatles fan, although coming around. I like <laughs> think. But I said, what was your favorite bit of uh, Get Back? And he said, uh, watching Kevin Johns set up the mics on the drums. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but his, his his drum mic technique is famous. Well, exactly. Yeah. And to see that for him, it was absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. But this seems like a very apt time. Uh, mentioned at the top of the show that it's your birthday quite soon. Mm -hmm. um, so if you look behind you, there's a little present there. Oh my god! I thought and the mug you, was the present. You can open it. Oh uh, wow! On the show. Shall I open it now? Open it. Yeah. Why not? Thanks, Jack. Happy birthday. Appreciate it. This is special. Uh, I'm very bad at wrapping, uh, wrapping oh, this presents. this is great. It's kind of gold lame, it looks like. I mean, it's very apt for what we were just, uh, <laughs> what we were just talking about. Oh, wow. It's a, it's a thousand-piece jigsaw of Abbey Road Studios EMI TG12345 mixing console. That is really, yeah. really amazing. The first solid-state mixing console that, that is extraordinary. So there we go. Wow, that's and brilliant. I know you're an advocate of dry January. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> that's should, fantastic. That Thank you so much, Jack. That's um, brilliant. So hopefully you'll be able to know what all those little knobs yeah, do. Yeah, uh, sure. Slightly better. <laughs> that's so cool. Wow. Thank you. You're very welcome. That's brilliant. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> Thank you. The other thing I was going to say... In terms of the books, the question from Christine, I think more books that do things that are a bit more like Kevin Barry's Beetlebone in terms of novelizations, like fictional kind of mm. ideas about what was happening. You know, I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, I read one by accident that, mm. um, when Ellis James was on the podcast. Uh, he recommended a book called Love Me Do, mm. I think. And I accidentally, I think, I think he was, his one was like a sort of, biography of the nitty-gritty of the early touring years and mine I read the first chapter and it was about a couple having a tiff in a tent in <laughs> 1963 and I was like wow. I'm not sure this is the right thing but yeah. actually I really enjoyed it mm. um so because yeah, I, yeah I, there's an amazing book it's yeah. called Murmur and it's about Alan Turing mm. and it's this kind of incredible kind of fictional account of kind of what it was like to be him mm. And it's he very dreamlike. Because um, there's a bit in Ian McEwan's, uh, one of his recent novels called Nutshell, where he oh, does yeah. an alternative version of the 1980s in which the Beatles are still around and oh. they're making uh, prog, horrible prog music and That's everyone's wishing in... they'd... Uh, but Alan Turing is also still alive oh, yeah. in that version of events. That's not and Nutshell, they sort of though, That's, the that's in... Oh, no, sorry, that's Machines Like Me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I haven't read um, that one. But yeah, Will Eaves is the guy who wrote Murmur. But yeah, no, I think yeah, something like that, some kind of novelization. I've kind of, you know, we've talked about the White Album a lot. Kind of, there's a novel in the White Album, I think. Yeah, well, in the dream world of the White Album. If, yeah, if you if you write it, they will come. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, bit a bit too much. It's hassle. too hard. <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff.
let's dig back into the board. Um, do you want to do... You've got a choice now of uh, pink or orange? I'll do orange. Let's do orange. Who's behind the door? Hello, lads. Merry Crimble. It's John Bradley. Uh, I've got a quick question for you. It's, it's Get Back related, but it's also a, a more general point as well. There's a lot of humour in Get Back. It seems to me that was something that Peter Jackson really wanted to focus on and bring to the forefront of things. The Beatles have an almost pathological desire, a need almost, to, to make each other laugh. And with that in mind, I just wanted to know, in your opinion, who is the funniest Beatle? Conversationally, just, you know, as a person in their own personality, in performance even it could be. Just wanted your take on it, because I think they're all hilarious in their own way. I just wanted to know, in the humour stakes, as far as you're concerned, who's top of the tree? All the best, fellas. Many happy returns. Well, that's a great question. That's a really good question. One that turns over in the mind a lot and that um, get back, you know, definitely widens the field of sort of funny Beatle moments. I think humour, we touched on it before, but humour in that documentary specifically is it kind of says everything really because it's a defense mechanism it's a bonding mechanism it's a way of getting out of sticky situations it's a way of protecting themselves from the outside world and they all use it in in different ways yeah which is really interesting and all of them i think it's worth yeah you're he's absolutely right they're all really really they're funny all really funny and yeah. there are loads of laugh out loud yeah i mean even the <laughs> there's one where um in this one where he says, like, once more with Felix. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> which made me laugh a lot, which yeah. is Paul. Paul uh, but Paul's, that's a very Johnny joke. Yeah, yeah. Paul saying, calling Glyn John's fuck face is good. Yeah, I mean, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Great, great humour. <laughs> I mean, I think the thing that I, that I was struck by is, you know, you're familiar with, the, like, Charles Hawtrey and the Deaf Aid stuff. Yeah. But in Savile Row, John's doing that all the time. He's, like, yeah, constantly yeah, yeah. sick. There's one bit I wrote down, which is... After 40 years in the desert, he couldn't find his balls. He's just <laughs> constantly singing these like daft songs. So I think there's a good case for it being John. But for me, it's George, because I think mm. I really like George's dry It's quite humor. cutting. It's yeah. cutting, and it's like, you know, the stuff we've quoted before, but saying to Ringo, oh, you've learned A minor, <laughs> is yeah. really funny. And I like the bit where he's saying about, he's talking about how, he was chatting to someone and said, they said, what do you need four, four speakers for? You've only got two ears. Like that. And, <laughs> I, you know, I just think the way he delivers a story. And yeah. I just really but feel they're for They're always George. quite barbed. Aren't yeah, they? they are. But I always feel for George because it's like that defensive thing of trying to get his voice heard. And he always thought he does so much, he does so much nervous laughter, George. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just, I think, I think George is so brilliantly funny, so dry. And yeah, you just kind of, a lot of the time you feel for him in the situation as mm. well. So, and I think he uses humour as a bit of a defence mechanism. Yeah, yeah. And Ringo, you know, Ringo is, is the great diffuser yeah. of any sort of tension. I, I love farted. the bit where he's farted. is yeah. absolutely fantastic. <laughs> Weirdly, the stuff when Peter Sellers is in the room and they're in yeah. full show-off mode, yeah. um, it, I find a little bit like... Well, I think John's on his he's having on his a bad absolute, day there. Yeah, he looks yeah. like he might have had too many... Um, Heroin, heroin drinks. <laughs> yeah, but the um, but John in that bit where he's looking to camera says to, he's doing the thing about the 
Boy Scouts, isn't he? Well, he says they died, so we might wank. But he says something like, um, "You won't, you don't go blind. You do go short sighted." (laughs) And that is, like, speaking from experience. And that was like that. That is very cheeky. Look to camera. He's very funny, (laughs) and they all crack up. You know, it's great. It's a tough one, I think, because John, John is the obvious choice. Yeah, John's got funny bones. They're very aware of where the camera is, whereas I think George is. Yeah, they all use it in different ways, really. But yeah, yeah, I would, I would would have to go with the obvious answer and say John, really. Yeah. Well, should we give Alice a rebuttal? Um, to John's claim that his pontificating about Get Back was very boring. Yes, let's see what Ellis has to say. Hello, Robin. Hello, Jack. Oh, I've done it. <laughs> I've watched Get Back in its entirety. I've now seen episode one for a second time, looking forward to watching episodes two and three again. Uh, it was a hugely compelling, engaging um, on a personal level, very emotional watch. Um, the Beatles anthology, I think I described it on the podcast one of the times I did it, um, is probably the most formative TV watching experience of my life. So that came out in November 95, so I just turned 15, and this obviously came out in November 2021, so I just turned 41. And honestly, when I was sitting there in my living room, watching The Beatles create Let It Be and Abbey Road, um, I could have been 15 again. It brought back all of those same memories and feelings. And I sort of fell in love with the band again. Not that I'd fallen out of love with them, but I realised seeing new material, just how much they mean to me. And also I realised that it has scratched an itch that I hadn't realised I had had for 25 years, right? Where... I've noticed that the one thing I want, no matter what the the book is or the documentary is, no matter what I want, or the one thing I want, I should say, is that I want to see the Beatles be themselves um, and not be the Beatles in a performative sense, in a sort of formalised press conference or something, or when they're giving an interview on TV. So just to see them, I mean, I've tried to argue online that they've invented the podcast because it's eight (laughs) hours of them just chatting. Uh, yet another first from the Fab Four. <laughs> but I found it soothing. I found it fascinating just watching them talk and eat toast and drink tea um, and talk about their hangovers and Ringo owning up to having farted, which I loved. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, that was the one thing I'd always wanted because I'd realised that no matter what book I'd read, it was the reported speech bits were always my favourite. So now, obviously, I have over eight hours of it. And I will gladly watch it again and again and again, I'm sure. Um, However, my question to you both is, bearing in mind that this book, I think, um, bucks certain um, received wisdoms, it dispels certain myths, and it, I think it it, it breaks away from the received narrative. Uh, Can you ever take a Beatles book seriously again because I thought I knew how 1969 played out amongst the band Uh, but I think I was wrong massively wrong Um, and also I think it was a more joyful experience than I'd been led to believe which makes me very happy I mean on one stage I think uh, they probably could have gone on to make more music together had Alan Klein, etc., not got in the way and all of that kind of stuff. But still, 
uh, what a legacy. Anyway, um, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Brilliant stuff from Ellis, as always. Very surprised to hear he loved it. Um, <laughs> and that was never really in doubt. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, exactly. But, you know, reiterating a lot of my thoughts there. But going to, to the question, mm. um, um, just to pick up on something you said of like seeing them not being the Beatles, I thought mm. what was very striking is how much they are the Beatles when they're not being the Beatles mm. and how sort of natural, once you've seen them in this environment, all of those press conference things are. They're just a heightened version of themselves, like like a lot of people on stage are, but the, the it's not an act. Mm. It's just them being, you know, a, a performative version of what their natural dynamic is. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in terms of, yeah, being able to trust the... And, and talking about the anthology, it's like I can't. I feel like I can't even trust the narrative in that, where they yeah. had complete control over it obviously we're one beetle down in terms of like editorial decisions but i think there's only so much you can spin the editorial uh when you're showing that much footage and sort of yeah definitely with books and in a year that i've you know finally read the mark lewis and book and you know read more about the beatles since we've been doing this than i ever have in my life like yeah there's no substitute for watching them in their natural habitat, yeah, like undoctored, really. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, is that kind of how you found it? Yeah, for sure. And I, I think, um, again, going back to this Peter Jackson interview on something about the Beatles, one thing, I mean, in terms of the kind of received wisdom, you know, you have to th- think about the fact of when Let It Be, the film came out, and also the fact it looked dark, this is something Peter Jackson talks yeah. about because of the way it was blown up, as they keep talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but like to the point where Peter Jackson was sort of saying to Ringo, you know, George walking, walking out wasn't that bad. And he was like, no, it was, it was. It's like, it's almost like a false memory thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I th- yeah, I do think that's really interesting. Like what, one of the big takeaways from Get Back is I'd always just had this idea that George Martin was so hands-off about the whole thing. And George Martin is so actively involved and so like gracious about Glyn John's working you know he doesn't want to what's he say cross change so horses there's no point in changing horses yeah. extreme yeah. yeah and and all that and um but George Martin's also so full of enthusiasm for it he's so involved he's there every day yeah it yeah. seems to me in several ways. I mean because he I think he understands that thing that I think we'll talk about this a little bit more but um the emotional maturity of them considering they're in their sort of late 20s and the that sort of analytical emotional skills that paul have uh especially in that one conversation but there's other bits where paul is talking about yoko and he's talking about george and Mm. he's talking about brian epstein and their lack of you know the daddy figure as he calls it and i think george martin knows that they need that Mm. and he want even though he's like relatively redundant in a sort of engineering way. He knows that him being there is going to make them behave in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And I think that his restraint Mm. and his stoicism in, you know, abdicating the responsibility of, like, being, pulling all the strings is absolutely unbelievable. And he comes... He's also much more on their level than you would think from maybe the received wisdom, which is that he is the kind of father figure or, you know an older generation, but he seems much more, he's definitely, he's in on the joke, obviously. Yeah. He, he, he you know. He, he gets he, the dynamic. He like gets the dynamic, No one yeah. else does, because yeah. he's been there since, since the beginning, and yeah. he's only 10 years older. Yeah. Back to Ellis's question, obviously, you know, as big revolution in the head people, um, you know, a lot of those kind of myths in that book 
kind of get exploded a bit, don't they? Like, you know, we, we've already talked about that, like um, John's bass playing on Long and Winding Road. Well, yeah. but I, and I think we had an email about this, but, you know, there's a bit in Revolution in the Head where he talks about John cruelly saying, you know, is it okay if we giggle in the solo? about let it yeah be. yeah yeah i'm watching it and that, i mean it's only it's right at the very end of part three when you see that bit but you know after all the build-up you know there's nothing malicious in it at all no i know completely and it's something that if you got the transcripts would be you know that, that might look a little bit sort of like it's a jibe yeah um and also he talks a lot about um of some some of the um sequencing yeah. decisions being quite vindictive Vind- yeah, yeah. which has having, always been how I thought of it but looking having at having Maggie May kind of yeah and, and putting yeah. in the stuff like Hartley yeah. Angels sing and yeah, stuff yeah. like Ian McDonald put forward that that was like John getting his own back for yeah. Paul being a control freak now I definitely question that yeah. sort of thing and I, I do I yeah. think those books like Beatle books they're, they're great but and Paul is the first one to say I mean we've talked about how he opens the lyrics book Mm. With a, a preface that basically says, "Don't believe any of these books," yeah. but they're nice to you know they're they're lovely to read, and we yeah. get stuck into them, and they're illuminating and yeah. Um, but I think yeah, you just have to take them with a pinch of salt, really, don't you? Especially oh, so, yeah, now yeah, that yeah, you've absolutely. seen. I said it right at the beginning, and the first tweet that I did when the embargo lifted on the reviews was that I fell in love with them all over again, and I mm. fell in love with John especially all over again, yeah, and that yeah. it's all there. It's yeah. all and like, and we've got. You know, one more of our little callers yeah. later on who talks about this very eloquently. But the, yeah. everything is there. The dynamic is there, even between the, the sort of more satellite characters. And it's just everything sort of fits together mm. in a way that we've never seen before. It's just incredible. Absolutely. And um, I was going to say as well, that you know, I think, again, Ian MacDonald talking about John's attitude to let it be in Long and Winding Road. I just think those two songs, you can see in all the rehearsals, they're never quite coming together because if you've ever played in a band, doing the slow songs is really boring. That's the thing. <laughs> That's the thing. And there's a bit mm. in Long and Winding Road where John, John has just got his head in his hands because he's so bored. Yeah. Fine. Okay. But, you know, it's just, I just think it's just like, and Paul himself says, like, I don't know what to do with this one. I haven't got a clue. You know, yeah. it's just, they're just, you know, they're slower songs, they're ballads, and they're, they're finding it a bit harder to kind of get the energy into them that they are yeah. for the more upbeat ones. And they're so Paul-centric that they're basically session musicians on a on a Paul track. Yeah, but I don't know. you're playing any... an instrument that's not really your instrument. Yeah, but, yeah. You know. Um, and uh, it's a, you know there's a bit where they're sort of jamming when they're drunk and he's like what a buzz man yeah, just, yeah. you know smashing out mm. and turning all the amplifiers up was like yeah, yeah a million miles away from trying to play like sensitive bass yeah. on a, a six string bass that when you're not a bass player exactly isn't I that, would be waiting for my turn <laughs> yeah isn't that really funny when they do for you blue and um, John says after because he's playing that little Hawaiian slide guitar yeah. and he says something like I was a phenomenon <laughs> it's so funny I love that yeah you know. right so which caller should we have now pink button hello guys Merry Christmas it's Matthew Crosby here from Pappies and from, from being my own man um Thanks for having me on the podcast. I had such a good time. When we were on the pod, we talked about the song Mr. Moonlight and especially <laughs> oh how much God. we all enjoyed John's vocal uh, intro to it, his a cappella intro, um, <laughs> sort of basically screaming the words Mr. Moonlight. And Jack had a go, but I think, I think he'd admit this. He didn't quite nail it. He slightly bothered <laughs> it. So I wonder if Jack, and in fact, Robin, <sighs> would like to give us their Mr. Moonlight 
to uh, to get a second bite of the cherry to close off the year strong. Um, nice. Be great to hear it. I certainly know. I'd love to hear it. Um, so uh, that's my request to you. Could we hear your Mr. Moonlights? Right. Um, I need to kind of. I need to hear it in my. Do you have to do it in the original key because it's top B, which is pretty tricky. Um, I will say that fair play to Matthew Crosby. Yeah. He's also given us. Because I thought maybe you might say you didn't want to do it. I'll give it a bloody he's good given, go. I've had three He's cans. given his version. Really? Well. So after we've done ours. Can I hear this? Can I just quickly hear the song? Because I just to kind of... I don't want to just shout Mr. Moonlight. I want to just... No, I'll, I can play it actual, for you right now. Yeah. I've got it all, all hooked up here. Um, you don't have to do it in the original key because no, sure. it is the highest note that uh, John, ever, John s- ever sang on record. And it's quite amazing that he managed it night after night. But here it goes. Mr. Okay. Do you want to go first? Can I stand away from the mic? Yeah, I think that would be best for everyone. <laughs> I need to stand up. <laughs> Shall I go first? Is that the melody? Do you want me to go first? Yeah, go on. Okay. Mr. Moonlight. That was quite good. <laughs> Mr. Moonlight. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> I probably went for it. Oh my god! Fantastic! Work. I mean, I, I let the irony creep in at the end, though. I know you got self-conscious. I did. Oh, I, you did much better than me. I no, 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 I can't no. have another go though. No, no, Maybe no. next year. Well, here's Matthew's version. Mister Moonlight. <laughs> did he put reverb on that? He didn't, but he um, He's in the he stairwell. said that he wanted to make it clear that he was in the dressing room of the last leg. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> that was pretty good. Superb. It was good, yeah. I mean, he went for a comfortable range. I think yeah. that's a very good idea. Uh, again, I absolutely fucked it. No, don't. God, you're so down on yourself. I uh, know, but you know, it's my thing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the only reason this started because I was boasting about my party trick that <laughs> I used to do at university. But I must say, at that point, I was uh, belting out the dream of Garontius all day, so my voice was quite shot at the end. Bloody but well. it's, uh, yeah. I think John's voice is just so bloody great yeah. in that period, and that's testament to... I mean, you can only really sing like that if you've been singing all day. Yeah, I mean, I shouted mine things. because I, my voice hurts now. Well, I think you won. You won. <laughs> <laughs> no, great no, no. stuff. Yeah, do you want to pick the next one? You've got your choice of red, orange, yellow, or green. Hello. Hello, boys. On the Personal Beatles podcast, James Acaster here. Uh, I have a question for you, uh, for Jack, and indeed for Robin. I would like to know, as it's the festive season, what is the most Christmassy of the Beatles songs that you would put on around Christmas time? I'm not talking about the Paul McCartney song, the Simply Having a Wonderful Christmas Time, whatever it was called. It's a good song, <laughs> and I love it, but it's not a Beatles song. I love of all it. the Beatles <laughs> songs, what's the most Christmassy? Right, well... That's great. I mean, I think there is an answer to this, because although it's not very well known at all, and it's only sort of come back into the official sphere in the last sort of 20 years, there is a Beatles Christmas song. Well, the the Christmas fan club. 
Which was, yeah, which was part of the Christmas no. fan club, but it's later than you think. So it's sort of 1968, I right. think. Yeah. Um, so it's in that kind of vein. Do you want to hear it? Have you never heard it before? Well, I've heard all the Christmas um, fan club things. Right, okay. So And then it emerged in the 90s as a sort of cynical B-side on um, Free as a Bird, because right. that was a re- released at Christmas time. Yeah, yeah. Um, Didn't get to number one. I mean, and it's not, you'll, you'll hear why. I'm sure, I'm sure, Rob, it's not... doesn't get a huge amount more interesting that's <laughs> great um, oh, they're all so good i mean the great thing about the christmas fan club things is you know you can hear if you want to hear the beatles relationship with marijuana quickly <laughs> illustrated to you the difference between 64 and 65 will really yeah. bring that into view but i'm amazed they're still doing it at 68 because there's actually yeah. it's very there's, nicely recorded yeah. that and there's some lovely there's stereo drum but i would say you know because that's not co- common knowledge what is the most christmasy beatles song for me i thought long and hard about it mm. and um it's the one that has you know a glass of red wine on a rug next to a fire mm. so it's got to be norwegian wood for me nice that sounds that's, like a Christmas party yeah, gone wrong. That, that, yeah, that's a good shout. Okay, mine is um, a, a, a weird one, but what's what's good at Christmas? You know, if you're watching a film or you know reading a book, what 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 emotion do you want to f- feel? Um, do I want to feel? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Sort of coziness. I fear. Fear. All right. Yeah. Okay. Fear. Ghost stories. Right, yeah, I don't like that, things like that. But M.R. James, Christmas Carol, no, Christmas is a great time for spookiness. And Too the, scary. But the, And the spookiest song is Revolution 9. So okay. That's my Christmas song. Not coming to your Christmas party. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, you know, it's, it's spooky, you know, and again, you know, I, I'm always banging on about Cry Baby Cry, but... What is Christmas about that? That it's spooky? You, you never had a seance at Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> Spookiness, spookiness. That's the sound of people cancelling their plans to come to your Christmas do. Don't you like how in uh, the the Paul McCartney Wonderful Christmas Time the the synth, the delay on the synth is slightly out of time? Do you think that's to invoke a sort of spooky nature? No, it's just kind of nice and cool and (laughs) not to a click. Possibly a mistake. (laughs) Yeah, but it sounds great. I mean, I I always hated that song until I saw him at the O2 a couple of Christmases ago and then... He played it with a, and then a choir of children came out, and I was like, "Oh no, this is <laughs> going to be awful." And something about the occasion just whipped me up into a real <laughs> festive frenzy. <laughs> well, that was a great question from James. You know, James Acaster, potential future guest. Yeah, he's maybe. going on a Beatles. Always been a, a Beatles agnostic, but um, yeah. no, he's going on a Beatles journey. He, he, he is. He, he, he Aren't asked, we all? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he asked me what was the best place to start, and he wanted the list of my. Of the albums okay, in, in terms of my favourite. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Next one. Oh, there's one I forgot here, uh, which is the little blue one. Okay. So do you want to press that one? Light blue. Uh, no, the dark blue. Navy blue. Hello there. This is Sam Carter from the band Architects. Um, I just wanted to say I wish you all a merry Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Um, and I'm very, very happy to have found the podcast this year and I've been absolutely loving it. My talking point for you guys is the scene in Get Back when it cuts to the audio of the conversation between Paul and John in the canteen. Mm. How did you guys feel about that? I absolutely loved it and couldn't look away. Uh, and found it so interesting, but there was also another part of me that was like, "Oh, maybe that was, maybe that was a line crossed. Maybe that was a conversation that should have just been left for two friends." Um, mm. And obviously, it was a really interesting part of the film. But yeah, I just wonder what you guys thought of that bit. And uh, yeah, I hope you have a, a great new year, and uh, long may the pod continue. Oh, Cheers, Sam. That was great. Yeah, I mean um, that's I. Yeah, someone got in touch to say that he was a fan of the show and, you know, it'd be great to have him on because I do think the kind of influence of the Beatles on metal is something which kind of we haven't discussed and on no. hard rock and stuff. No, I mean, yeah, I know a lot of um, sort of people who are into their hardcore and their metal who are big Beatles fans yeah. and would often cite Helter Skelter as the beginning of that for them. Yeah, Helter Skelter um, for sure, like um, Ozzy Osbourne was a big fan. He said yeah. he used to work. Was it? He used to work in an abattoir, abattoir yeah. and would um, go out and have a pie in the pie shop. Remembered he was where he heard Strawberry Fields for the first time. It's such a great story. <laughs> Lemmy is a huge Beatles fan. There's a great little video of him getting the mono box set in a record shop. You know, huge, mm. huge Beatles fan. Yeah. So but, yeah, it'd be great, great to have him on. I'm sure we will if we come back. Yeah, I'm a I'm a big metal fan, but a lot of the best metal. The reason. Metallica have sold so many records is they know what a, a hook is. Yeah, and you know similarly I mean? with Architects and you know, a lot of, uh, you know, it's very melodic. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's something we definitely haven't explored at yeah. all, really. So um, very, very interesting. And, and going to address the question, yeah, I did feel a little bit voyeuristic, mm. um, I must say, watching it. I guess the sort of slightly ickiness is the fact that the film crew decided to do it rather than the fact that we were watching it. I didn't yeah. feel too cl- complicit in it because mm. it obviously happened such a long time ago, but I think it would have been an editorial decision that they kind of struggled with, but it's so revealing mm. that you can't really leave it out because it obviously is the only moment in the whole film where they're completely unguarded. Like, yeah. unguarded. And there really isn't much Beatles footage at any point where they're, 
you know, unawares, mm. you know, when it's properly candid. I, I um, think it's, and I think the, the nature of the conversation sort of justifies its use, really. Yeah. Because they're not saying anything nasty. It's just a very illuminating little insight into the nature of their relationship and the way that they chose to use the sort of graphics and the subtitles mm. was really good as well because they're almost part of the captions is because the quality of the dialogue is yeah. great but mm. also because they're speaking almost in a kind of like nadsacky yeah. half sentences that yeah. only people who are that close can kind of understand and they're trailing off and they yeah. don't need to finish sentences and yeah. that's really interesting because it's that sort of almost telekinetic nature of the yeah. way that they communicate. I thought was absolutely fascinating. Absolutely right. Yeah, I think there is that private language, and and you know, and they are confronting things, and you know, as you said earlier, in quite a mature way about McCartney's kind of bossiness. Want mm. a better word? Yeah. The thing that's fascinating about that bit is, like, as you say, it's kind of hard to think without the visual and the fact that they're talking in the kind of quite private language. It's hard to kind of figure out what's the subtext, what's going on underneath it somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like because because the, even when you are reading it and hearing it, you yeah. still there's so much that's lost in yeah. obviously what was going on in in between sort of physically. Whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then I don't know. It's just and then it strikes me how old they are. Mm. And I had this conversation with someone about that scene in the in the pub quite recently. To have the emotional maturity at the age of twenty seven, twenty eight. Yeah. If I had falling outs with people at that age, yeah. it was just like, oh well, that was that was a formative relationship that's gone to bed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. didn't have the sort of lexicon to yeah. be well, able you know, to kind of, and the fact that it was the, the problem th is unsolvable. Yeah, is what's really interesting because they they are like, you know, I don't know how we solve this. Mm. Maybe it isn't something we can do, but like you know, it was like it's a wound, and we've allowed it to fester. Yeah, you know, God, yeah. They're so aware yeah, of what's yeah. going. It's not like they're being. You know, because you could be forgiven watching the footage to think that they're just not really thinking about George, no. but they're hyper aware of, oh, yeah, yeah. of the situation. But I mean, in terms of like Sam's question there is about kind of the kind of the ethics of the filmmaking. Mm. I think there's a lot of the stuff that's a bit in a grey area. And again, I'm going back to this great Peter Jackson interview, but he he says, you know, the, one of the interesting things about the George argument, you know, I'll play what you want me to play, is George is out of focus because the camera was fucking miles away. Yeah. And they were zoomed in on him because mm. they didn't want them to be aware that they were being filmed. Yeah. So, you know, there is a lot of, you know, stuff like that, you know. You know. <laughs> but, um, I mean, but then again, you know, having a hidden microphone, that does, does seem to cross a line, doesn't it? But I think, again, that enough time has passed, I think. Yeah. It's a historically... And it also speaks to this thing of, like, Michael Lindsay Hogg not necessarily having their best interests in heart and yeah. caring more about the, the finished, finished product. Mm. But... You know that's filmmakers, I suppose, isn't mm. it? Um, mm. You know he's not he's not their friend. Yeah, he's there to get this you know re revelatory, candid mm. portrait of what it's like to be with the Beatles. And yeah, yeah I, I mean, if it had been in the original film, I think people would have asked more questions. But now, fifty years has has passed. That's kind of it doesn't belong to them anymore. It's like mm. it's part of the annals of, yeah, yeah. of the history yeah. of the whole thing. But um, mm. it's a fascinating question and a fascinating 
part of the film. Um, and thanks so much for the question. I'm, I'm a big fan of Architects, and yeah, that was yeah, great. who just um, did a big live thing at Abbey Road yeah. as well in Studio. I think in Studio One, wow. even which yeah. is pretty amazing. So you can check that out. Um, mm. I think on uh, I think it's out now or will be at the time of listening. So yeah. cheers, Sam. Happy Christmas. Thanks Merry very Christmas. much. Right, shall we dive into another question? Yeah, let's do it. You've got a green and an orange or a yellow. Hello, it's Pictish Trail here. Oh, cool. Um, congratulations to Jack and Robin on another top series of your own personal Beatles. I really enjoyed this series. Uh, it's probably my favourite one that you've done, not just because I was on it, um, although it was interesting to hear the range of Maka impressions throughout uh, the series. I'll be honest, going into my episode, I was pretty confident that I had a good Maka impression, but... Uh, yeah, hearing your impression, Jack, on the Buxton episode and Oof. Sean Keaveney's amazing better. one. I've I've just stopped doing my Paul McCartney impression <laughs> entirely, at least publicly. Anyway, <laughs> I watched Get Back and what an amazing experience it was. I consumed all of it within four or five days, I think, and yeah, totally loved it. I was going to ask you if it had altered your perception of Yoko. One thing that jumped out at me just after I'd watched the first episode, I think, uh, I saw a tweet from the Guardian music journalist Jude Rogers and she'd written this. Um, Tomorrow night we're going to watch Get Back. I just watched a clip that's been released. Yoko is sitting there impassive and I suddenly remembered something I wrote about her a few years ago. In November 1968, she had a miscarriage when she was six months pregnant. The baby had been due three months later in February 1969, uh, a month after the get-back sessions. No wonder she was there. No wonder her husband wanted her close. What they must have been through. And that tweet from Jude really made me think about how Yoko was demonised and unfairly blamed for the breakup of the band because in the show you see nothing but tenderness and respectfulness towards her and John from all of the Beatles and by halfway through the series I found her to be a really sweetly reassuring presence just sitting there knitting or reading a book not intrusive in any way um so yeah I just wondered what your thoughts were on all that hope you have a great Christmas and yeah Looking forward to more Maca impressions in series three. <laughs> that was great. Thanks, great. Johnny. Cheers, Johnny. And I think that uh, that really to contextualise Yoko is ju- is such an important detail. Yeah, and something that I'm like considering they did make an effort to sort of editorialise quite a lot of stuff. You know, maybe a caption at the beginning to mm. put that in a bit of context might have been useful because. I've seen both sides of this. I've seen people who have said that I find her really annoying. Um, I completely disagree. I think you see that closeness. Mm-hmm. Um, you see that obviously John is is quite vacant, and you know a lot of people would you know have pointed out that he might be under the influence of a few different things over the course of that that month or so, and a lot of that I'm sure is directly related to you know um, that bereavement. Mm. Um, but it's their closeness really that I think really shines through and also the way that the other Beatles deal with it yeah. and it's just 
they're so explicit in their support for them, yeah. which is why it's interesting to see just how far that's been taken sort of out of context. And obviously the famous like clip is the Paul joking about, you know, 50 years time, they'll be like, they broke up because you're called Sharon and Am. Yeah. But what he also says in that conversation when you see the whole thing is, you know, him being completely supportive of that, but also understanding that that is where the love of John's life oh, is yeah. now. And him saying, you know, if John has to choose between being a Beatle or a Yoko, you know, which mm. he's going to choose Yoko. Yeah, yeah. And also the lovely interview with the, um, you know, the fans outside. Um, I don't really like to say apple scruffs, anyway, but the, the fans yeah, outside. Yeah. And, and they say, what do you think about the relationship with Yoko? And she said, well, you know, it's fine. It's his choice. And they're like, and the interviewer's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, like no one's ever yeah, made yeah. that. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. You know, and... I, I should say as well, you know, obviously Yoko was demonised um, at the time, but I think, you know, Ian Penman in that great London Review of Books article said something good about Yoko, which is it, she, she's she's not completely immune from criticism. You know, and I'm not, I'm a big Yoko defender. Yeah, I just say, I'm just saying, right. let's not make it a kind of binary thing, you know. Well, obviously <laughs> there know. is an element of like, if you've ever been in, in, you know, everyone has gone through those formative relationships where yeah. certain members of groups fall in love and like tensions happen and yeah, breaking yeah. up the band and, you know, these old, those wedding bells of breaking up this old gang of mine or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, of course, there's an element of that. Yeah, but yeah. just as much as there is with Linda. And there's a... Yeah, of course. Paul makes a joke about it when Linda has a, a bit of advice and he's like, all right, you're cool. Yeah, and yeah, he's yeah. sort of, you know, taking exactly, the piss yeah. out of the kind of press narrative of it. Yeah, and, and of course, course yeah. it would be... I'm sure if the, in an ideal environment, she wouldn't have uh, been quite so present. But also yeah. in an ideal environment... John might not, you know, he might not have even been there if she wasn't yeah, there. So, and course, I think they're yeah. very understanding of that. So. I, I love her in it. I think she's brilliant. And I think her, you know, her vocalising and singing is just fantastic. And it is, like, you've got to think this is 50 years ago. And I've seen comments online of people saying, like, oh, you call that singing? Or, like, oh, God, what's Yoko doing? You know, and it's like, you know, it's just, if that was a, you know, if it was a man, still now, I mean, this is 50 years ago. Yeah. Like it wouldn't get that kind of response. Yeah. Uh, so I and and obviously the amazing bit is Heather McCartney just yeah. being kind of yeah, like yeah. completely gobsmacked by this incredibly expressive person. Yeah. Which is just and then sort of mimicking brilliant. that and John's eyes lighting up and yeah. calling her Yoko. And... Yeah. And it just like it's in a funny way it's like I don't know like I'm a huge Kate Bush fan and I do you know the song Big Sky. Yeah, yeah, it's so incredible, and you and you just think like this is a pop song with a woman vocalizing and just making these crazy sounds, mm. and like you know, there's who did that before, really? Yeah, and exactly. They, you know, and even like people like Bjork who dismiss her as like a, yeah. she's a weirdo or yeah, a, or a yeah. kook or whatever, and yeah. then you know someone like Tom Waits is like a you know a genius for yeah. like gargling away <laughs> in some of his more experimental stuff. Yeah, sure. There's, a, there's always an undercurrent of uh, inherent misogyny totally. that goes along with it. And also it's just like there's so much of the kind of experimental noisy stuff happening. So it's like mm. why aren't you sig- you know drawing attention to John's just feeding back his guitar or Paul feeding back his guitar, you know, or just like yeah, just making about a like joke that. out of everything. Yeah, there's yeah, like yeah. a really nice take going, and then he starts like doing a really stupid yeah. accent or whatever. You'd yeah. be like, oh bloody hell, he's ruining it. 
but you know, I, th I think I think you know, just as you think you can put those to bed, there's always going to be a few people that come out and. But I guess, you know, the Beatles have always had to straddle that thing of being the most popular band in the world and still having an element of the avant-garde, mm. which a lot of people would rather didn't wasn't in there. Yeah, like that young guy in the street afterwards. They used to be all right, you know. Yeah, yeah, time. exactly. Yeah. But you know, people yeah. say that about like. Kid A. Yeah. You're always going to get that. Yeah. I mean, Kid um, A is with... rubbish. But... No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, Careful now. But um, talking about out in the street, I think that was... I mean, obviously, there's a lot of those interviews on the original Let It Be film, but I think that it's such a amazing snapshot of London and a snapshot of the kind of open-mindedness of people, which yeah. in many ways is surprising. And it, it reminds really me... subverts class and age in a yeah. way that the original film didn't necessarily portray yeah but yeah yeah true but uh, it reminded me have you ever seen the jeremy della film everybody in the place no it's think. really good it's a film about like it's about rave culture in the late 80s and early 90s and the film is jeremy della giving a lecture to a sociology like a level group and showing mm. them this film almost like historical footage of like rave culture. Yeah. And there's an amazing bit where Jeremy Della has got footage of um, lots of people kind of going to the equinox at, at Stonehenge yeah. for a kind of, you know, rave, I suppose. And, <laughs> um, and it kind of stops the video and there's this older couple there and he says like, what, what do you think they're going to think of these people? And all the kids go like, are oh, they really not going to like this? They're going yeah, to think, yeah. like, get out of our town, you know. And it, they press his play and the old guy goes, oh, they're, they're welcome to do what they want to do. You know, <laughs> it's a free country, you know. Yeah. And um, and it's like, and the woman says, you know, like, where are they getting their money from? And he goes, you know, I'll, I, if they want a drink, they can have a drink. If they want some <laughs> money, they can have some of my money. I'll share what I've got. And he's like this incredibly, like, wise and just accepting. Mm. And it really reminds me of some of those people in Get Back, who you're saying, you know, they brought a bit of life to London and stuff, where it's like, you know, you make these assumptions about an older generation, but it's an older generation that would have been through the war or, you know, even been through two wars in the 60s. And then tolerance was very important. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, I think I just think, yeah, so, somehow we kind of lost sight of that recently. But, like, I just think that generation had been through a lot. I mean, this is a slightly different generation in the late 80s to the 60s, obviously, but the older generation was a lot more accepting than you might think in yeah. some ways. And I'm glad that they made an effort to... The whole way that they did that whole scene, because, you know, we've seen a lot of that footage and we know, um, you know, it's the most well-documented bit or the mm. most sort of, you know, uncut version. And the way that, they, that Peter Jackson decided to do it of making the star of that show the audience and mm. and because you've been so confined to those studios to step outside of the door and see it contextualizes what's going on in those in those studios in mm. such a brilliant way and, and also yeah, to see the kind of you know the things happening at the same time so i think as they're doing i've got a feeling which i think is the actual take yeah that yeah. ends up on let it be that's the policeman arrive yeah, yeah so it's yeah, like yeah. all that weird serendipity is like mm. all recorded really nicely 
Um, and even then, the stuff, just the stuff with the policeman. I love all these stories on Twitter of like people's parents spotting themselves yeah. in the footage and stuff. It's just, a, it's just amazing. It makes mm. me proud to be a Londoner. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, even though I wasn't born for 25 years <laughs> afterwards, or 15 years, or whatever it is. Mm. Um, but yes, another, another superb question. Yeah. And uh, yeah, well, we've got a couple more. We've gone on for a while, so we will rattle through we'll edit the last through. Down, maybe. Yeah, I think we probably will. Do you want to go orange? <laughs> yeah, sure. Hello. I'm recording this message. There's a baby on my chest. <laughs> it's Josie Long. I feel like she has just done. I, at the best, a wet fart in response to your Christmas special. Despite yeah. the fact that I am a busy mother of two, I don't have Disney Plus and I haven't yet seen it. So what I would really love is if you could summarise how each of uh, the Beatles comes across throughout the whole of the hours and hours of footage um, <laughs> as quickly as possible for me, like... Are there any personality-based updates that you didn't expect? Um, I doubt it, um, but that would be exciting <laughs> for me. Um, I'd also like you to tell me, like, what are the most charming bits of footage, in your opinion? Because I feel like there'll be loads of charming, sweet, silly moments that people won't be have been expecting. That's my question. Not really a question, more a request. Goodbye. Goodbye, Josie. Thanks Sounds very much great. for getting in touch. Yeah, thank um, you. And congratulations on the new Abra. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, in, in terms of... I mean, I think we kind of touched on this quite a few times, but I'd say that the the overall things for me uh, or it was, was John just being uh, much less spiky than mm. I thought he would have been and much more um, sort of emotionally available considering, mm. like, the previous narrative that we was he was pretty out of it. Paul being bossy and quite hard to get on with at the beginning and then mellowing once he realises that his, uh, you know, behaviour is <laughs> breaking up the group. Ringo being just the absolute cement in the middle of it mm. and his drumming being absolutely superb and, you know, why we're still having the debate about Ringo's drumming. Absolutely. Hopefully this will put that to bed. Well, one of the debates as well is about John's guitar playing. And, oh, and, and he, he's fantastic in that. I didn't even realise that was up for debate, but uh, yeah, John John's a brilliant guitarist. You can see throughout. He's so inventive. His solo in Get Back is brilliant. You know. Yeah. He's... And George, I think, being uh, rightfully aggrieved. <laughs> yeah. And not being bolshy and yeah. having completely legitimate scene. reservations. That's a lovely scene with George and John on Yoko. Where he's talking about I've got all these songs I just want to get out, and and, and yeah. Yoko's going, yeah, you should, you know, and that's brilliant. And John's saying, you know, it might make the Beatle thing strong. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's going to help us in the long run to get them yeah. out. Um, yeah, that and that sort of yeah, it just reinforces all of those sort of fraternal yeah. things. But in terms of charming moments, I think for me the stuff with Heather is just so mm. lovely. It's beautiful. And, yeah. and Ringo and Heather that we got a glimpse yeah. of in the trailer. Yeah. You seem to be wearing the same costume at one point. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, the charming moments for me is, as you say, like I just think John, particularly when they get to Savile Rose, um, there's such a, an amazing naivety to him. He seems almost like he reminds me of my. My nine-year-old nephew. There's this kind of toddler-like wonder and kind of interest in things as well. Yeah. And as I said, I'm, you know, I mentioned somewhere else about his kind of slight technical naivety, you know, calling microphone stand sticks and mm. stuff like that. And, you know, there's a lovely moment. It's just sort of happening in the background where they're lifting Leslie speakers in to the Savile Row. 
and John's yeah. helping lift one, and he does such a crap job. <laughs> it's like the camera pans away, and there was these like cables falling off the top. Like he's just done a terrible job. But there's a moment I just spotted, which is you know, so John's playing his Epiphone Casino, and you know you've got your strap hook at the back, mm. and he puts his strap on the wrong way round. You know, yeah. so the back bit's facing forward. You know, it's, you know, it's like, <laughs> and there's just this bit a few minutes later, maybe, where you see George put the strap on the right way round for him. <laughs> and it was like, oh, yeah. I just thought that was so touching. Yeah. Because I just think it was just, you know, they loved each other. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I thought that was so good. It's beautiful stuff. Yeah. Um, so the final one that we've got is from uh, Matthew E. White. And he sent us a fantastic little ramble about how um, much Get Back meant to him. And to be honest, there's such brilliant points um, and there's not really a question at the end mm. that um, I've just sort of cut this down to what I think is basically the crux of the whole documentary that we touched mm. upon at the beginning of the show of it just being this fantastic portrait of um, the creative process. And it's amazing to him hear him talk about that as someone who is a performer as a musician and mm. as an engineer and a producer and someone who is probably spent more time recording music in a studio than anyone else we've had on the podcast um so let's have a little listen to this um to sort of play us out and mm. then we'll say our goodbyes at the end but um i found this quite touching and yeah. really um, quite illuminating hey jack and robin this is matt white i'm gonna ramble on about get back for a second I don't know, it's been one of the highlights of my year watching that thing and uh, really one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Just jaw-dropping for me as a producer and a songwriter. <clears throat> I actually just this morning finished it, finished the rooftop show, and I mean, I, I cried watching that. I, I couldn't, I cannot believe all the nuance that you get to see about being in a band and being writing songs with people and it's all there you know every everything about this world that's sort of annoying is there and everything that's great is there and they're so talented but they also don't they don't really think much of themselves at times it's just a really touching and a really personally important piece of film for me i i just couldn't I can't get over it. I could watch it. <clears throat> Probably will watch it ten more times. It's amazing. It's just amazing. I think the the main takeaway, so many times, maybe in the music business, I, I'm sure it applies to other parts of life too, but like when you think things are the worst, sometimes they're really not the worst. And sometimes they're extra special. And the struggle kind of sometimes is the point, even though at the time you don't want it to be like that. And they're, they're in the midst of, of change. You can see that. But... They're also in one of the most unique, special parts of their lives and some of the best work they ever did. And they seem so unaware of that. And maybe it's good to be unaware of it, but at the same time, I think it makes me really think about the situations that I'm in now or the relationships that I have now, maybe even some relationships that aren't ideal, and really try to dwell on, on the fact that the, the struggle is sometimes the point. Anyway, this is a couple thoughts appreciate you reaching out and having me on the show. Hopefully I'll see you talk to you all soon. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Very nice. I think that's brilliant. Isn't yeah. It? It's, uh, it's, and so true, mm. that, you know, for anyone who's tried to make any music, 
the the struggle is usually the point where I put down tools. <laughs> yeah, um, but also that unawareness—that's a really big thing, isn't it? That kind of yeah, they're kind of slightly unaware of obviously of how well reg- I mean, particularly Let It Be, which is just possibly more than any other Beatles song has taken on a life of its own. Yeah, and all and lots of songs that they you know that end up on best ofs and that Paul still plays to his yeah. to this day, and I think to sort of wrap up i think that finally maybe paul has kind of achieved unintentionally through this kind of no holes barred view of making the album what he's been striving to do for ages is mm. is to show you know to get something out of it he wasn't sort of necessarily happy with it and let it be naked is a good stab of it but mm. it's there's a whole new audience of people who've seen this film mm. and i've spoken to lots of people and someone um, my friend adam was talking to on twitter yesterday who is not a huge i think beatles fan and didn't really know let it be and he was like oh it's amazing that through all this struggle they created probably their best album uh-huh. and it's like well, Let It Be is in the bottom half of people's Beatles albums yeah, more yeah. often than not. Well, that, I think yeah. people now have a much higher regard for it, having seen yeah, true. the process and knowing the story and knowing you know, the, why some of it is quite rough around the edges. And it's, yeah. it's given the album this new life because it's, there's now an abundance of context around yeah. it. But even that's got another kind of, you know, because imagine you hadn't heard Let It Be... And then you watched eight hours of that, and then you listen to it. You're like, "What? Where?" You know, because Spectre doesn't get mentioned, obviously, because yeah, it's a year yeah, later. Yeah. But yeah, but it's a um, very yeah. It's, and and the, maybe the beauty of the album is that it it's not the masterpiece. Maybe yeah. it, it is just a brilliant. It's it's, it's a, just a great yeah. document of yeah four people at the at the peak of their powers trying to make something. And there's maybe the failures of it are actually more interesting. No, totally. Yeah, than, I think. Um, it's it's given you this full picture of something, and it's it's about the process, and so yeah, it's it's yeah, right, well, it's right. the journey, not the destination, yeah. isn't it? Which is so true of so many things. But why? But um, you know, why do we keep going back to them? Here's a little quote from Proust. I've gone full on Sood's corner, but yeah. uh, melodies you replay a hundred times in succession without descending farther into their secrets. But that's why we keep coming back isn't it? Mm. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And, and, and as they always ask more questions than the answer, exactly. the more that you yeah. see of these things. Mm. And, you know, I don't think we'll ever get anything quite so revealing as this ever again. Mm. Mm. But, you know, it's delivered in every single way yeah. <laughs> from when we first heard about this yeah. project and what an extraordinary thing it's been and how I've just been loved seeing how people have really gotten bored with it, buying the mugs and, <laughs> you know, all the, the beautiful artwork and the lip service that people who aren't Beatles fans have been paying for it mm. it's just it's just an absolutely extraordinary project done so well yeah. and uh, thanks very much to Peter Jackson for doing it I mean it's quite incredible yeah as uh, Matthew E. White said yeah it's amazing yeah so yeah we'll leave it there we've rambled on for quite long enough mm. we'll take this opportunity at the end of the year to just say a massive thank you I guess to everyone who's listened it's been an absolute joy to do for another year picked up loads of new listeners along the way and been you know achieved way beyond what our modest hopes for it would have been two years ago it's quite unbelievable the people that we've been able to share time with and uh, hear stories from and um 
you know the fact that they're personal stories means means everything to us yeah and uh yeah. and also yeah you know I, I often think about thing joe wisby said when we did the beatles books things you know it feels like this podcast was the kind of the start of your beatles journey and, and it, I, I feel like it really was for me because I, I you yeah. know i was obviously a huge fan when i was a teenager but doing this podcast has made me learn so much and you know find discover so much that i've just kind of i thought i loved the beatles but <laughs> yeah <laughs> not as much as i are. do now anyway. yeah exactly it's <laughs> opened up so many new worlds of it and mm. i think there is a singularity to, to them um mm. and you know I, people of my friends who have been enjoying the podcast that say to me like oh i didn't even know they were your favorite band it's like well they they all they are but mm. they also aren't you know they they they're just a constant mm. in me that probably mean more to me than than any other band mm. and to share those those sort of similar experiences with people has just been absolutely joyous and mm. I, I hope we do come back in some form even if it's not beetle related yeah. but um even if we don't thanks very much to it for everyone to listening and do keep beetling on yeah thank you so much keep beetling on happy christmas <laughs> Thanks a lot, folks, and a happy uh, Christmas and a merry new year. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs>